Welcome to the second episode of Ancient Asia. We're going to carry on our series on the history of the Indian subcontinent by covering the origin of what is known as the Vedic civilization in India. I'm going to be making a few announcements after the show. So stick around if you're interested. Happy listening. In August 1940, as the world watched in horror, the fascist Romanian government passed a series of laws designed to decimate its Jewish population. Romanian Jews had already seen what was happening in Germany. Hundreds and hundreds of Jews tried to convert to Christianity for escape. Unfortunately, much like many of their ancestors throughout history, they found that conversion didn't work. You see, the authorities who passed these laws weren't interested in the religious beliefs of the Jews. The question was not what do you believe in, it was what are you? And the Jews found out that they couldn't just stop being Jews. You take the Dalits in India, the members of the untouchable caste. They have tried for decades to escape discrimination by converting to Buddhism or Christianity. But just like the Jews, the Dalits have found out over the years that they can't just stop being Dalits. You see, the Romanian authorities continued deporting almost all of the Jews anyway, conversion or not. Dalits in India continue to be discriminated, conversion or not, for almost all of human history. Who you are as an individual has mattered less than what you are or your group identity. And as the Jews and the Dalits and immigrants throughout history have found out, you can't just change your identity by adopting a new belief system or changing your actions or even your location. In fact, a man's group identity is almost like his shadow. It might disappear every once in a while. But whenever you shine some light on him, to look at him carefully, you'll find it there. At this point, you're probably wondering, why is he talking about group identity again? What does group identity have to do with the history of India? But if you're Indian, you already know the answer to this. And the answer is everything. I'm not sure there has ever existed a place where group identity has been so central to its history as India. And there's certainly no place where group identities that might be as old as 3500 years continue to be incredibly important. I mentioned in the last episode that for the West, the Jews are the prototypical example of an ancient people. But if we take the date of the Hebrew Bible and the birth of Judaism to be roughly speaking around 600 BC, then by that time, the Hindus have already been around long enough for their entire language to radically change so that they can't even agree upon what their holiest words mean. And this also brings to mind one of the deep contradictions that seems so inherent in India. On one hand, India is thought of as this ancient place with deeply entrenched group identities 
and a long history of discrimination. On the other hand, it's also thought of as this widely diverse and tolerant place where persecuted races throughout history have come for sanctuary. How could both of these be true at the same time? It makes no sense. And yet we know that there is a lot of evidence for both of these viewpoints. Indian history is like this great, extremely difficult jigsaw puzzle. That is why, in search of pieces for these puzzles, we have to go back to where we last left this story. To the arrival of these nomadic cow herders from the steppes of Central Asia, who historians call the Yamnaya people, but who are more popularly known as the Aryans. Now, when you read history, this period is a transition period. It's like the people in India are catching a train from one station to another. And this is not just a station across different times and different cultures and societies, but the action physically shifts as well. If you open the map of India and if you draw a straight line from the north to the south, going through Delhi, then so far the majority of the action was on the north and the west of Delhi. But when the people get off this train, they would have gotten off on the other side of Delhi, on the eastern and the southern side. It is here that India's most holy river, the Ganga, first enters the stage. Now this is a period of historical darkness. There is very little archaeological evidence and basically no historical account. Almost everything that we know about this period derives from one set of objects. Oh, but they are not just any objects. You see, when the people of India got off this train into their next station, they carried with themselves one of India's and humanity's great cultural achievement. They carried the books which we now call the Vedas or the Vedas. Unfortunately, the very thing about the Vedas or the Vedas that make them such singular cultural achievements also make them a terrible guide for reconstructing the history of this period. It's a bit like using the Old Testament from the Bible to reconstruct the history of the Holy Land. And remember the Vedas are at least 500 years older than the oldest part of the Hebrew Bible. I say at least 500 years because of course, we don't know the exact time of the Vedas. We don't even know who wrote them. See, large parts of the Vedas, especially the Rig Vedas, are basically the hymns and the songs and the mantras of people who had not yet started practicing agriculture or had settled down into cities. These were the hymns and the mantras and the songs of nomadic cow herders. That is almost a different subspecies of humanity. Because remember, these nomads didn't have settled society around them. They were completely untouched by civilization as we know it. They are the thoughts of an oral society, a pre-literate society that were later written down. And there are so many things that we modern people can never understand. For example, in many of the mantras or the chants, the the order and the pronunciation of the word is said to be more important than the actual meaning of the word themselves. Now this is of course 
extremely strange to every modern person. How can the meaning of the word not be important? But there you go. It's a different kind of society. They have a different worldview. So as you can imagine, the accounts of this period are very, very different. It's that Rorschach ink blot analogy that has served us so well in the last episode. And it continues serving us well in this period. We'll probably never really know what happened. But we are going to try, right? Now in the previous episode, I tried to give you the general view, not to pick up any particular strand. I'm going to try something different here. I'm going to try and pick out one story out of the many different explanations out there. It's one that sounded the most carefully researched and free from bias and least speculative. And it comes largely from two historians, Michael Witzel and Fritz Stahl. I will be linking to the papers and the books in the show notes. But just remember that large parts of this theory are informed speculation. And there are other explanations that could fit in here. So the theory is that in the many tribes that crossed over from the Hindu Kush mountains into India, there were some individuals who were thought to have a special power. These people would often chant in strange ways and with strange words that others couldn't understand. They would conduct these rituals and sacrifices that seemed to bend nature to their will. These people were, of course, probably the forefathers of the Brahmins in India. And together with some of the strongest warriors or the Kshatriyas, they were the most important people in their tribes. They were the drivers of this train we keep talking about. Of course, there is nothing unusual about this. This is standard operating procedures for all ancient societies, especially tribal ones. And now the story goes that when Indian history was going on its train ride, driven by the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, it seemed to make a stop somewhere in between these two stations we've been talking about. And this station was the scene of the first battle that we know of in Indian history. The name of the battle sounds like something out of Game of Thrones. It's called the Dash Rajan Yudh or the Battle of the Ten Kings. Now, in terms of actual scale, this war must have been really small because there isn't any archaeological evidence about it. And we know that this wasn't a war between great empires, but between tribes. The only number that we have comes from the Rig Veda, which says about 6,666 people died. And we can tell that's just poetic license. So if you take a satellite back into time and scan different parts of the world around this period, you would probably not give a second glance to the small handful of people fighting here. Particularly because we think it's the same ballpark time that you had this apocalyptic Bronze Age collapse in the Mediterranean region, involving all of these massive empires. But history doesn't always happen with a bang. It is possible that the outcome of this battle decided the fate of almost a quarter of the world's current population which lives in the subcontinent. The people of India call their country Bharat and it comes from the Bharata tribe, which is believed to be on the winning side of this battle. One of the other significant things that happened as a result of this battle is that the victorious tribes got to settle in an area that today is one of India's most culturally iconic cities. It is a place that would later be the setting of both one of the greatest epics in Indian history and one of its most revered texts, 
a place where even the gods are supposed to come to offer sacrifices. This is the city of Kurukshetra. It is only about two hours away from Chandigarh, where I'm recording this podcast, and a similar distance away from Delhi. And today, unfortunately, it is a small, politically irrelevant city in Haryana. But almost a millennia after the last formal state in India, Kurukshetra became something like a proto-state. Now this was, of course, nothing even close to the sophisticated cities of the Indus Valley. But after India had fallen many rungs down the civilization ladder, so as to speak, this represented a small step upwards. Kurukshetra became the setting of the first Mahajanapada. Now Mahajanapada is a difficult term to pin down. But for the purposes of our discussion, we can think of it like a formal state or an empire. Now, I found this part of the story a little unsatisfying. It was too much of a jump for my liking. What, 10 tribes just suddenly got together and made a state? Why now? Why not earlier? What was special about this battle? Why Kurukshetra? There were so many questions that I had and I felt that we couldn't really move forward until we had answers to those questions. But that's why these shows take so long to make. Because where would you find answers to this question? Because it's not as if you're going to find a step-by-step account as to how the state was formed. You never find those, even at the best of times. And India in 1200 BC is definitely not the best of times as far as historical records are concerned. So what I did was, to sort of fill in the gaps here, I went and read some books and essays and research by anthropologists on the formation of early states. And I tried to use some of their findings to try and understand how this might have happened. And my search began with something very basic and fundamental about how uniting together in a grand battle against an enemy, how that would forever change how these different tribes would look at each other, how that would engender feelings like unity and patriotism, what it would do to the prestige of the leader of this coalition of tribes. Remember, each of these tribes would have had their own leaders. So this king of kings, this Raja, he can't just be just another chief, can he? He needs to be something more. And then there are other less intuitive effects of war. Although correlation does not imply causation, and even if it does, the direction of the causality is not clear at all. But it's not hard to see warfare exerting a sort of Darwinian force on the tribes, getting them to develop some administration. After all, the troops need to train together, they need to be fed, the wounded need to be tended to, the dead need to be buried. After the enemy has been defeated, you need to organize all the tribute that has been captured, all the prisoners that have been taken. You need to divide and defend this gorgeous new farmland that you've probably acquired. And as a result of this battle, you have a lot more subjects than you did before, which makes your job even more complicated. So you need more sophisticated administration then. This goes on in a virtuous circle. Now, imagine you're one of the rulers of this coalition of tribes a few generations later. You see the beginnings of a bureaucracy formed by the evolution of this administration over the years encouraged by your predecessors. You can probably call upon an army. 
Now, these are channels for a ruler to exercise power and to do things that have never existed at this scale. He wants to preserve these channels, maybe for personal reasons, maybe because he believes it is the right thing to do, probably both. But there is one thing that worries him. You see, for all the unity that might have been forged by war, for all the natural similarity in traditions, considering they are from the same place after all, remember the natural state of humans is still to live in a small tribe. It's how we have lived for millions of years. It's why we have things like the Dunbar's number, which is basically the proposed cognitive limit to our social life. This Raja, who is believed to be the Raja Parikshit, finds this natural human tendency beginning to splinter his fledgling state. Chiefs of other tribes are becoming more and more independent. You have conflicts between different tribes coming up. Anthropologists have seen this stage very often. It almost represents the great filter, to borrow a concept from the Fermi's paradox. This is where an overwhelming majority of proto-states break up to become small tribes again. So how do you overcome this tendency, this natural force within human society to tear itself apart into smaller and smaller groups? It seems impossible. But Raja Parikshit seems to have realized that in that sentence lay the solution. Because if you believe Michael Witzel, Raja Parikshit took help from the only power that he knew that could achieve the impossible. He took help from God himself. You see, Raja Parikshit identified that there is something needed to tie all of these different tribes together. A common narrative, an identity. And this is where he might have pulled off one of the greatest socio-political moves in all of Indian history. Although it's also the oldest trick in the book, pretty much every monarch who has ever ruled has somehow claimed that his rule was ordained by God himself. This is a fascinating example of this sort of modern myth-making happening in the Kuba Empire in modern-day Zaire. I will be linking that in the show notes. I encourage you to check it out. So Raja Parikshit reaches out to the conduits of gods, the Brahmins that we talked about earlier. And he gets all the secret knowledge, all their mantras and their rituals and so on. And he begins to compile all of them together. Now this would have been really hard because Brahmins, even today, but certainly back in the day, were fiercely protective of their knowledge. The Vedas, for instance, were supposed to be knowledge that is dangerous in the wrong hands. It is why we basically have no written copies that survive to this age, because the copies would have been destroyed. The Vedas have been mostly preserved through an oral tradition, and that itself is a story worth telling, but it's for another time. But anyway, somehow Raja Parikshit gets these different Brahmins to work together, to combine all their knowledge, to merge all their different beliefs into a broad system. This, folks, might have been the beginning of both the Rig Veda and Hinduism. Now again, a word of caution, a large part of this theory is informed speculation, but then there is good evidence too. I'll be linking Michael Witzel's wonderful paper in the show notes. Please check it out. Now you might have noticed that I've only briefly described the actual contents of the Vedas themselves. That's because I really think that talking about the Vedas 
is a fool's errand because it will take you decades of study to make at best what would be informed speculation about the content interpretations of vedic content is all over the place i've gone through about 10 odd variations and i really wasn't able to find any firm ground that we could stand on but there is something really interesting that happens after the vedas emerge you see the sense i always got when i was reading indian history is that in 600 bce where we finally get some records it's almost as if india wakes up from a dream it wakes up with some memory of who it is some habits and some traditions that it has always been doing but the, but there are a few things that it doesn't really understand about itself the only clue it has are the vedas and india then turns to the past to understand its present almost all of the intellectual and the spiritual efforts of this already massively populated country now goes towards understanding the vedas and you can already see its influence for example in the vedas you can trace the origin of the tradition of the great indian guru or rishi or spiritual readers now it is said that it is these gurus who wrote the vedas themselves after hearing it from the lips of god this tradition is still incredibly strong the vedas also contained the seeds of india's great philosophical and spiritual traditions after all india's where four of the world's biggest religions belong to and god knows how many other sub religions or spiritual traditions exist even today this whole in- indian virtue of renunciation for example comes from the vedas where life is supposed to be divided into different phases with the last phase being the one prasth or an exile into the forest the vedas are of course the source of the many many indian rituals and mantras that emerged perhaps even the caste system many of the later religions that emerged had an element of rebellion against the superstition of the vedas but even as some of these religious movements became incredibly successful they would go back and many of its followers would begin following all the rituals all the mantras and the caste system that so characterized brahmanical culture this reminds me so much of max weber's brilliant theory of religion it's a question that we might well explore in a later episode now the effort to understand this old text full of archaic language led ancient india to develop probably the most sophisticated science of linguistic this linguistic science would culminate in panini who is thought to be the father of linguistics and this had a possibly unrelated effect you see when these ancient indian scholars were trying to develop the rules of their grammar they created artificial signs for these rules to give you a contemporary example in english they wrote rules like a verb plus ed transforms it into the past tense walk plus ed walked but the conceptualization of this artificial sign something like the plus symbol is of course one of the greatest discoveries of humanity because these artificial signs lead to things like the language of mathematics which is of course the basis of all science today it is no surprise that the modern number system of ones and zeros of course comes to the west from india by the arabs so folks this might have been the story of how the indians got off onto the other station in that train ride we were talking about but another important change that that train ride accomplished 
what's the geographical location of the station that these people got off on up till now all the action was on the north and the west of delhi the area which we can generally call the punjab region but now the action shifts broadly speaking to the east and the south of delhi now is a good time to define the boundaries of the land that we are going to cover in this series we are focusing of course on what is known as the indian subcontinent and the reason it is called a subcontinent is because it is essentially separated from the rest of the world by two mountain ranges and the sea but for our story there is a third mountain range that we also need to be aware of the first mountain range is on the north and the west of the indian subcontinent where you have modern day india nepal and bhutan these are of course the himalayas which are the tallest mountains in the world and they do a very 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 good job of separating this part of the world from basically china the eastern borders on the other hand are manned by the hindu kush range of modern day afghanistan and they do a less good job as india already found out they would find that out again and again and again in their history the third range is the one in the center the vindhya ranges the vindhyas of course aren't that high but they contain a lot of dense vegetation and they have traditionally been an area where a lot of violent tribes have been living this made the vindhyas a bit of a barrier a boundary of sorts between north and south india in the older sanskrit texts such as the ramayana you can find the vindhya ranges as described as the unknown territory infested with cannibals and demons the manu smriti of the second century which is a hugely hugely influential text that we will be talking about a lot that refers to bharat which is what indians call themselves as the country between the himalayas and the north and the vindhyas in the south and flanked by the seas in fact these ranges is what would cause the huge divide in cultures between the north and the south now if you haven't figured this out already but what we have been calling the history of the subcontinent is really the history of north india parts of pakistan and afghanistan we will probably be doing another series on the south indians but you can't really include north indian and south indian history in the same narrative they are two separate stories as far as i'm concerned now a short word about geography my favorite scholars in history have always been the cross disciplinary ones the people who merge different strands different sciences and some of the most interesting merger comes between geography and history it's really interesting to think of the ways that the lay of the land the unique features and the climate and how it affects the civilization that happens well india is no different there is strong evidence to suggest that the geography of india had a huge influence on the civilization i will be doing a little mini sort of sorts on this subject but for now i'll just leave you with a little teaser that there is strong reason to think that you can trace many of india's defining characteristics at least partly to geography for example overpopulation and the lack of political unity this lack of political unity for example would allow invaders to come to india over and over and over again and where they might have instead faced the combined arms of the most populous nation in the world they instead face lots of small armies 
the british would even use these distinct indian armies to capture parts of india for it effectively outsourcing the capture of india to indians how ironic is that but almost a thousand years before caesar conquered britain leading to its first mention in global history indian history slowly starts to get some pieces in its puzzle there will be some archaeological evidence built up although it will not reach harappan valley levels for at least another 600 years up to about 600 bce and then all at once many things start happening in indian culture you get real kingdoms and empires emerging and what about historical accounts the metaphorical light that you need to solve this puzzle well ladies and gentlemen the lights are about to come on in a big way you see because if this current part of indian history was strangely devoid of personalities you could have so many great personalities entering indian history in the next 6 to 7 centuries and not just within india but outside india that you can hardly spare the time to talk about them all for instance the two greatest empires of their age at first the persian arachnid empire under one of the greatest kings in history darius the great is going to conquer the northwest part of the indian subcontinent he is going to be followed in a couple of hundred years by one of the few figures of this period who could overshadow darius the great i'm talking of course about the most recognizable and famous person in all of ancient history and probably even all of history alexander the great alexander gets his own pr professionals to travel with him so suddenly a lot of light from the outside world is now trained on india and the funny thing is that even as the two great world powers of their time the persians and the macedonians even as these two great powers intertwine their destinies with india it almost seems as if india doesn't notice because even as the literary output of india absolutely explodes during this period you can barely find any mention of these two towering historical personalities the reason of course that india doesn't notice is that a vast majority of its literature is religious philosophical and spiritual this is for instance the time of the famous upanishads and then of course two of india's most important and greatest historical figures emerge edg wells the sci-fi writer and amateur historian included one of these individuals as one of the three greatest men in history alongside jesus christ and aristotle and you know what i'm not sure he's that much of the mark you see if you make a global list of the so called moral champions of humanity people not with skills per se but with morals and characters and that sort of thing you will have to work really really hard to find people that can score better than any of these two individuals and just as an aside it is striking how many of the people on that hypothetical list will be indian right i can already think of four indian names that will be an absolute shoe in for the top 10 or 20 including one that follows not long after these two the two individuals i'm talking about are of course lord mahavir the founder of jainism and gautam budh the founder of buddhism gautam budh is the greatest indian who ever lived according to my totally unscientific and arbitrary list these two individuals will be the tip of the spear in the so called axial age 
as Judaism starts to emerge in Israel and you have the birth of ancient Greek philosophy, they will be the tip of the spear in the so-called Axial Age. As Judaism also starts to emerge in Israel and you have the birth of ancient Greek philosophy with Socrates and Plato. Not to be left behind, the Chinese give us two of their very best in Confucius and Lao Tzu. While some historians also think this is the time of the great Persian prophet Zoroaster or Zarathustra. But what Jainism and Buddhism will finally accomplish is to introduce, thankfully, mercifully, a semblance of recorded history in what we now call India. Buddhist and Jain literature is one of the earliest literature in India that actually starts recording the immediate past and the present. Although it's going to be a far cry from the histories of Herodotus. But we take what we get. And we can finally say goodbye to the Rorschach test analogy that fits so well in this part of the Indian history. We can use this light to start afresh on this fascinating and beautiful puzzle that is Indian history. In the next episode, we pick up the puzzle again with the Buddha, Mahavir, Alexander and more in a very, very eventful period of India Guys, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Just a few quick announcements. The show notes aren't up yet, but I'm going to try and get them by the 7th of August. So if you were looking for them, just check back at that time. I also want to sincerely apologize for this huge delay. This is a passion project. And uh, I can only devote so much time to it. And before I get any material out here, I really want to make sure that that material is absolutely authentic. So that takes very long. And then I want to make sure I've got the best narrative to make it interesting. I got quite a few emails from you guys asking if I had given up the project entirely. And I want to assure you that I'm definitely going to go ahead, no matter how long it takes, till at least the Mughals, which is... For those who don't know, somewhere around 1500 AD. So we are a good 2500 years from the story. Thank you so much for your patience. And to everyone listening, I want to assure you that I reply to every email written. So please tell me what you thought of at fatehasman at rate of gmail.com. That's F-A-T-E-H-S-M-A-N-N at the rate of gmail.com. Now I'm going to try a couple of things to make sure I can take episodes out a little faster. The first one is I'm going to try and collaborate with a few people. I need somebody's help in editing. So if there's somebody who wants to be involved, just reach out to me on email. The other thing I'm going to try and do is to experiment with a few mini-sodes, as I'm going to call them, borrowing from Tim Ferriss. These are going to be shorter, more speculative, and uh, while I don't want to say unresearched, but I think sometimes I think I go a bit too far on these main episodes. But that's just because I want you guys to be able to trust everything that I'm saying here. No questions asked. So I double check and triple check and even quarter. But for the mini-sodes, I might lower my bar just a little. Don't worry, it's not going to be too much. But just a little. Just to make sure I can get them out faster. Okay, I think that's it. Guys, thank you so much for listening. This means the world to me. Please, please reach out to me on email, on Twitter. My Twitter ID is Fatehsman. One email from you makes all of this worth it. Really. So do that. Hope you enjoyed the show and stay safe. Bye-bye.